Hello and welcome to Tell Me About It, brought to you by NAM AIDS Map, Radioville and Public Health England. It's a podcast where people with HIV and an interest in HIV share our experiences. It's an opportunity for us to talk to people who may know a little less about HIV, celebrate progress and learn from each other. Our lives are varied and diverse. There's no one way to be HIV positive. Every episode, we'll hear from two people with different perspectives. They'll share what they know and how their lives may have been shaped by HIV. Today, we are hearing from Dr. Naomi Sutton and Kate Moyle and their experiences. Dr. Naomi Sutton works as a consultant physician in sexual health for the NHS. Naomi has starred as the doctor on the popular E4 TV show, The Sex Clinic, crystallising her mission to challenge unhealthy assumptions and reduce the stigma surrounding sex and sexual problems. Check her out on series one and two. Naomi is also a trustee for the Saving Lives UK, a charity which exists to raise awareness of HIV and STI testing. Kate Moyle is a psychosexual and relationship therapist and certified psychosexologist. She's the host of the Sexual Wellness Sessions podcast. Alongside her central London therapy practice, she is a regular media contributor on the topic of sex and relationships and believes that normalising conversations about sexual well-being can move us towards a more accepting and sex-positive culture. Over to you, Naomi. Thank you. Um, well, I'm delighted to have been invited to chat and especially with my, my I feel like you're a bestie, not that we've met in real life, but my uh, friend Kate Moyle. So we've done a podcast together, haven't we? Um, and we're friends on social media. But yeah, so thank you, Kate, for joining us. No, absolutely. Thrilled to be on. And yeah, we're, we're like virtual besties, aren't we? We'll yeah. meet in person. <laughs> one day. <laughs> and hug one day. One day. Um, but no, I'm thrilled to be on. And for me, this is a really important subject and one that I think doesn't get enough airtime. So um, I was absolutely thrilled to be asked. Yeah, and I think both of us are really passionate about I guess, exploring myths and exploring where stigma comes from. And I think, especially mm. with HIV, there's so many myths and false truths out there. I mean, even on Twitter this morning, I had someone talking about herbs, you know, treating HIV and stuff. And it, it, you know, there are people out there who are propagating these myths. Um, and I think it started from the moment HIV erupted into our sort of conscious being. Um, so... Yeah. Um, Kate, do you know anything about the history of where HIV came from, I guess, or any of that? Very stuff? little, um, actually. But I mean, you know, you taught me um, quite a lot when we had our first kind of podcast conversation together, I suppose. And we did um, the podcast together on sexual health on my podcast, The Sexual Wellness Sessions. But I know that it originated in monkeys. But really, yeah. um, you know, apart from the kind of social stigma and obviously the kind of HIV and AIDS crisis and working with it in a in a sexual health way now yeah I don't really have a huge amount of knowledge I know I know you're gonna illuminate me <laughs> well, or, gonna say, are, there any, are there any myths that you've heard like you know silly things that people band about like you know it came from having sex with monkeys for example that one yeah definitely yeah or that the US army went in and injected certain people it was part of a biological warfare I mean there, there are 
so many crazy stories. So if we debunk a few of those to start with, so there is actually two strains of HIV. There's HIV-1 and there's HIV-2. So when we're talking about HIV in general, we're always talking about HIV-1 because that's the mo- that's the virulent virus. So it's the virus that has spread throughout the world. Mm-hmm. HIV-2 is a very similar ancestral relation, but it's a different virus and it can cause the same sort of immunity problems, but it were over a much longer period of time. So that's why it hasn't really become the virus that we see today as HIV-1. So when we're talking about HIV, I think it's really important to know that we're talking about HIV-1. The virus that we know as HIV-1 originated from the simian immunodeficiency virus. So HIV stands for human immunodeficiency virus. And this originated from the chimpanzee. And we know that because very, very clever people can do phylogenetics, which is basically a bit like looking at a family tree of a virus Mm. so you can track back changes so a bit like um i don't know nose size or whatever and you can these clever people um you know look back so we can see how the virus has mutated over time now we know that actually the mutations happened well let me put it out there kate when do you think the transmissions happened from monkey to human oh god i wouldn't even know where to start I think years before we even got to kind of like the HIV crisis, way, way, way back. Um, And I'm kind of really listening to you all here because I can't even spell the words that you're talking about, let alone (laughs) alone, think how do people work this out? Just trying to make myself look really clever. (laughs) It's working, I'm completely in awe. (laughs) Well, so so the very, very clever people who work all this out think that the possible timeline is between 1884 and 1924 is that when the transmission started happening. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't people having sex with monkeys, but within sort of um, culturally within Africa, bushmeat activities, so um, killing chimpanzees for food was, you know, a popular thing just like we kill pigs and animals in this uh, pigs and cows in this country and so they'd potentially machete up this chimpanzee potentially cut themselves and the blood transmitted from the chimpanzee into the human would then in some cases cause the transmission of this virus and so over time there will have been hundreds of these transmissions and then it, it evolved within the human body into HIV which is what we see today now the reason There was probably little pockets of this happening all over Africa. But because, you know, we didn't travel, etc. in, you know, back in the early 1900s, it never became the epidemic. But because generally Western man went over because of colonisation. So in the 1950s, we went over and decided Africa was ours. Sorry, I feel, you know, bad white people. We've got a lot to say sorry for. But anyway, we went over and we, you know, built railway tracks and big cities. Um, and so we moved a lot of um, men into big cities from their villages um, without their wives. So prostitution became very rife. We also went around villages trying to get rid of um, smallpox and syphilis and things. So we'd go from village to village with our needles and, you know, inject. We were trying to do good things, but injecting one villager after the next without understanding that um, exactly transmission Mm. needles should be sterilized etc etc so there was a lot of reasons and also travel was becoming massively popular so it's likely that HIV 
moved into the USA in kind of the late late 60s, early 70s. And that was, if you remember, kind of around the Stonewall riots and gay rights were being sort of becoming more popular and, you know, it was a much more accepted thing. So there was lots of gay bars and, you know, it was the start of the gay revolution. So, you know, you can see how, so there was travel, there was prostitution, there was gay rights. So all these things sort of, it was like an ideal, I guess, storm to populate this virus. And by, you know, well, AIDS was first clinically observed in 1981. There's a cluster of cases of Carposi sarcoma, which is a skin cancer. If anyone's watched Philadelphia, the film with Tom Hanks in, he has these sort of, uh, they're like big mole-type cancers over his body. So there was cases of that that we'd never seen in the medical world because it's such a rare cancer, but lots of these are popping up, as was cases of uh, PCP, so pneumocystic carinii. So it's a very odd type of pneumonia. So all these cases are popping up in young, fit men, especially in the, in, um, in the westernised world. So this became this kind of, you know, scary new concept and doctors didn't know what was going on and nobody knew what's going on. So already there was this fear. And if you think of what's happening with COVID now, people mm. are fearful about what's going on. So, and this was something that was killing people. And is the so, link between those illnesses that people were seeing a lot of is that they're kind of like immune, um, like immune suppressed yeah, reactions. Exactly. So the link yeah. kind of between lots of the things that people were displaying was that their immunity was really struggling that their kind of immunity was on the floor yeah which we obviously but, know is a huge factor of HIV and AIDS exactly yeah and and but people had never seen this before that I don't think mm. there's been anything previously that had just abolished people's immune system as it did and I find it really interesting as well so if you talk to African patients they saw what we term AIDS as very different so in in westernized countries it was PCP and carposis sarcoma in um, African countries it was TB so people used to describe it as the wasting illness and you know see very very thin people um so again it depends where you are born as to what kind of opportunity infections were you're likely to pick up Mm. um so so tuberculosis kind of uh, being tb sorry yes yes tb being yeah tuberculosis which again is much more common in african countries so um again it's i just find it fascinating how people have a different perception of um what aids is depending on where you originate from. So, yeah, so this all happened. So, you know, the, everyone was terrified and no one really knew how this was transmitted and no one knew what was happening. And I don't know, Kate, you're probably younger than me, but I remember when I was very, very young, the adverts on the telly, mm-hmm. so the AIDS adverts. And the big gravestone adverts. Yeah, with a lily falling down. And that terrified a generation. So anyone over the age of 40... That's what they remember now. So everyone remembers all the media hype about it, the AIDS adverts, all the rest of it. And since then, we have progressed hugely, more than any other field of medicine. We are no longer in that situation. And so I guess for me, the most important thing is, one, yes, understanding where this stigma's come from and why we have these feelings about HIV and AIDS. I don't like the word AIDS. I don't think it's necessary and I don't ever use it anymore because even someone with a very poor immunity, so which would have been classed as AIDS, you can still resurrect them with medication that we have now and, you know, get them to lead a healthy life. So nowadays, Kate, I know you're, you know, I'm talking to someone who's already converted, but, you know, you know now that HIV is a chronic manageable condition, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that 
we now know that it can be managed, that medication is so amazing. I mean, when you think scientifically and medically how far we have come in a short space of time, it's mind-blowing. And We had a World AIDS Day this week, and so obviously people were kind of posting about it and sharing about it. And I I always learn quite a lot from um, those real kind of pushes that we have with awareness days. And I think there is now an awareness day for everything, but some are really, really important. And that is one of them because so many of us grew up and those TV adverts were there, but also the generation kind of behind, behind that grew up hearing about it and being told all about it. And there was so much fear and so much stigma. And a lot of that was based on, as you described, everyone kind of, not knowing and it feeling so all-encompassing and you know it killing so many people and so many people being having their lives torn apart by this that fear became a way of managing people or managing people's behavior or scaremongering and you know it it was very scary there is absolutely no denying that but then there was no I suppose, resolution. And there are amazing charities like Terence Higgins Trust and people trying to say, okay, but we've moved on from that now. But Mm. it does take a lot of time and a lot of work and a lot of effort to filter Mm. that message through to where we are today. Mm. Um, But, you know, the fact that PrEP, so um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, a word I always struggle to say, is now available on the NHS. I mean, what a massive, massive step forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've got loads of ways. Well, so first of all, there's been effective medication since 1996. And so since that time, we've been collecting data. So over over 20 years of data that we've got to show that people who take medication. So all medication within the UK is generally effective if you take it regularly. So we've got mm-hmm. access to amazing medication. And if someone's taking treatment and their viral load's undetectable, which it should be if it's effective, they cannot pass HIV on to sexual partners. So I think that's a hugely important thing for people to realise in the community who don't know anything about HIV. So what really upsets me, I don't know if you have any patients who are HIV positive, but I sit in the clinic and that's the thing that people ask me about is, well, when do I tell anyone my diagnosis? You know, will they reject me? You know, what I don't know how to tell them. When do I tell them? Do I tell them early? Will they run away if I tell them too late? Is it a breaking down of trust issue? So that's a real and and that that's what makes me upset. And I never really know quite how to advise them because again, it depends on that relationship and it depends on the knowledge of the person they're telling. And so I think if we all knew that actually having sex with someone who's HIV positive on medication is safer than having sex with someone who has never been tested and doesn't know their status because then they potentially do have HIV that's not being treated. So it's almost switching it around so that it's it's a positive thing to know your status mm, and it's absolutely. a positive thing to be on treatment. And I think you said this to me. Is there something like, eight percent of the uk is it eight percent will have hiv yeah. but won't know so actually yeah. the well, no, that not, percentage of people not knowing is the yes yeah, so i think the, the numbers change all the time i think it's about one hundred and six thousand. i don't know um with hiv in the uk and i think they estimate about just under seven thousand of those don't know their status 
So they're the people that we need to be reaching. But again, Kate, I'm sure you hear this. You know, we, we pigeonhole people with any STI as, well, it wouldn't happen to me. They're dirty. They've done something dreadful, whatever. STIs happen to anybody or can happen to anybody who's having sex. So if you're listening to this now and you're having sex, you are not immune from getting anything, chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, HIV. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're black, red, white, spotty, gay, lesbian, queer. What, it doesn't matter. If you're having sex, potentially there's a risk there. And the thing that you and I have a real bugbear about is the, the language that we use around these things. Yeah. So the word like clean infers mm. that if you have something that you're dirty and in no other area of our health, in no other mm. area of our lives, do we blame someone for having an infection, blame someone for having okay. an illness. And I think that even just how we use terminology is something that we need to create um, a shift around. And I think that, you know, as you said, the kind of you is you campaign, the kind of undetectable equals untransmissible, um, that redu- that um, effective treatment kind of can't pass it on. So that can't pass it on message. What we're saying to people is in, you know, being on treatment, in being aware of your status, in taking your medication, in being kind of conscious of that, you are being responsible for your yeah. own sexual health and therefore the sexual health of your partners. And that is a good thing in our sex lives. And I think that understanding, and you use the term kind of like viral load in blood, like being lower. So like Mm. sometimes people use the word suppressed, I think is another way of people describing it. But it's just really important that we have the knowledge. And I think for me, that's why doing podcasts like this is really important because Mm. knowledge is power, you know, education. Mm. We're trying to get these messages out there. And that's really important. Um, In fact, you've just reminded me of of language. So I used to talk to patients about saying the word, you know, when are you going to disclose? And I was corrected by one of my lovely HIV patients saying, Naomi, why do you use that awful word disclose? It's like you're disclosing a criminal activity. And I was like, good God. Mm. And so, you know, we can all get it wrong. So that's another thing I'd like people to do is if you hear jokes or, you know, untruths, you know, correct them because, again, don't go along with it and pretend you don't know any better. I think it's everybody's responsibility to, you know, if someone does make a joke about clean and dirty or any of these things that we're talking about, just correct them. It's like it's like with racism, it's like with sexism, it's like all these things. Unless we stand up and go and correct people, we just carry on in our own little bubbles as well of, um, you know, doesn't really matter, it's all mm. okay. And it's always, you know, those that narrative has been the norm historically, but we are living in different times now and we can change that narrative. We can change our understanding. We can change the norm. And for me, you know, I want kind of you as you to be the norm. I want that to be the normal conversation that people have. And I've worked in sexual health and, you know, I, one of my um, kind of earlier career therapy jobs was for a um, charity based in Vauxhall in London. And I was working with, men having sex with men and you know it was a lot of a big part of the conversation and a lot of it was about fear and about risk and about Mm. taking risks and I think that you know a lot of the conversation is also around that community so the kind of men having sex 
men having sex with men community, the um, gay men's community, but we also understand that HIV happens in women. And mm. another thing that I think is really important for us to bring into this conversation is that women can, who are HIV positive can give birth to HIV negative babies. Yeah, yeah. You'll know a lot more about so. that than me, but I know that it's something that I've absolutely been educated on. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So yeah, I think, again, I sometimes think it's more difficult for heterosexual people living with HIV because there's a lack of knowledge. I think a lot of men who have sex with men, I'm not, I'm not, well, I have to generalise, otherwise you can't talk about anything, but a lot of men who have sex with men often know a lot about HIV. Absolutely. And it's much more accepted and people understand the you because you message. When it comes to heterosexual population, I think the stigma is far worse. Um, but yes, you're completely right. And the, the antenatal testing for women in pregnancy has been one of the best things. So we often pick up women with HIV when they're pregnant and, you know, with, again, with treatments, very similar to the U equals U message to the fact that you're undetectable. If you're undetectable, when you deliver the baby, the chance of transmitting the virus onto the baby is incredibly, incredibly low. So again, amazing things that we can do. And also, we were talking about um, populations. Um, where I work in, in Rotherham, a third of my female population are white heterosexual women. So again, you know, it's not just black African people who are affected. It's not just gay men. It really can affect anybody. And when you look at the data, the people who are diagnosed late are the older age groups and those who are generally white and heterosexual because they don't see themselves at risk. Mm. And also, I don't think healthcare professionals do either. So I don't mm. think we offer the testing as we should do. So I know there's a big push at the moment to offer it universally because there's so many missed opportunities for us to you know, just do a blood test you know and it's cheap it's easy mm. and that perhaps our awareness um of certain groups as you're saying is higher for um hiv in those certain groups and so that's the kind of one of the first things we go to so i'm mm. i refer a lot of people for example to 56 dean street in soho in london absolutely yeah. fantastic fantastic sexual health clinic and, you know, it's part of the conversation there. It's norm. Of course it is. It's yeah. because, uh, but it's also in the heart of Soho. So it really caters to, I suppose, a kind of more uh, like the gay community a lot. And I guess one thing I wanted to kind of go back to a bit, and it's also because I want to learn more so I can have these conversations more, is we've had this big um, move forward with PrEP being available mm. on the NHS. Yeah. But how exactly, and then we've got PrEP and we've got PEP, so one being pre-exposure, one being post. Yeah. But they work differently, and I guess I wanted to know how exactly they do work and how people can, I guess, get a bit more information about that. Yeah. So, yeah, so we've, we, we love an abbreviation in medicine. So um, PrEP is, as you said, it's pre-exposure prophylaxis. So this is for, in this country, it's most commonly used for men who have sex with men. So very high risk who are having condomless anal sex generally. But again, our population is very difficult, very different, sorry, to if you look at, say, the African population, where it's mainly affecting women, for example. So PrEP in African cultures, you know, 
I mean, I'm not, availability obviously varies, but in the UK, the majority of people we prescribe PrEP to would be men who have sex with men, partly because if if you're in a black African culture, we'd always encourage more testing. So say if you are with a partner, for example, we'd encourage them to be tested, but it definitely doesn't mean that if you do feel that you're at risk, then definitely come and talk to your sexual health clinic about it. And it's basically a tablet that you take in the majority of cases, you take it every single day. It's Travada, so it's a combination of two of the antiretrovirals that we use very commonly to treat HIV. In uh, heterosexual situations, you have to take it every day um, because that's what the studies have shown, and it's over 99% effective if you take it every day and, you know, Amazing. you've got good adherence. Yeah. And, but if you're a man who has sex with men, you can also take it in what we call um, an event-based dosing, so you can load yourself up before you have the sex, so... You double dose two to 24 hours before you have the sex and then you take it every single day whilst you're sexually active and at risk. But also, you know, we've got to remember that that doesn't prevent against syphilis, gonorrhea, um, chlamydia and all all the other STIs. So, Mm. you know, it's good, but it will never it never gets rid of the need for condoms. Um, But again, it's a great it's a great adjunct to us to try and prevent any further infections it's a specifically hiv medication not a generalized sexual exactly. health medication yeah, perfect yeah and so it's it about be- keeping an amount of the medication that in the blood in the blood at a kind of level which protects against the virus yeah. if you were to get it passed if you were to pick it up if you were to get it passed on exactly yeah so i think about it in my mickey mouse way of thinking is if you've got travada in your bloodstream and a viron, so HIV virus, gets into your blood. It just gets busted before it before it um, takes hold. So it's probably <laughs> a way better way of explaining that. But so it's like a yeah, like a little kind of like defense yeah, fighters yeah, in your blood. Yeah, you've got your little fighters in the blood, and they're going around. They're just and they just make it explode <laughs> before it before it goes into your lymph node. So that's so that's prep, and then you talked about Pepsi. So Pepsi is post exposure prophylaxis after sexual intercourse or exposure sexual exposure now that has much less evidence because you can't do trials where you give some people um, post-exposure prophylaxis and others you don't so a lot of it's from animal studies Um, but the theory is very similar to the prep issue this is used in more of kind of an emergency type situation where someone's either been sexually assaulted or they've had sex with someone the night before, whatever, but that has to be given within three days. Yeah, of seventy-two exposure. hours. So, and I've got, have I got this right that PEP is more effective the quicker you take it, and it has to be within seventy-two hours. Definitely, and as I said, you know, Pepsi is definitely not a substitute for PrEP. So, if you think so, a lot of the way we've been, I guess, identifying patients who need um, PrEP are people who've had Pepsi in the past. So people who've had unprotected anal sex, for example, who um, will potentially go on and do that again. They're the kind of people who we'd be looking at thinking, well, is it best that we put you on PrEP to start with? Um, And I think as well, a really exciting concept that I want the world to know about, and well, definitely the UK, is that we can end this HIV epidemic. We can actually stop transmissions. So if we diagnose this remaining, say, 7,000 people, will stop on with transmission because if people, you know, in, in the UK, the NHS provide HIV treatment free. We provide all the care free. You don't even pay your prescription charge. So, you know, it's if we could get everybody diagnosed in care on treatment, 
there would be no more transmissions in the UK. That's and I amazing. Think that's, isn't it? When we've gone from this killer disease where there was no hope, people were dying, you know, it's dreadful. And also, I should say as well, you know, it, if you're an asylum seeker or everything else, it's, lit, it's free. So, you know, don't don't feel that you can't access the NHS. Yeah, we're prioritising this part of health. And yeah. because it's so effective, because this medication is so effective, because yeah. when used correctly, it's so effective. You know, that that is just, it's just unbelievable. For me, it's yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah. And, you know, there is nothing else in, there is nothing else in medicine that's just as amazing. Mm. I'm very biased, but, you know, it's too, <laughs> really, it is, really is phenomenal. But again... Uh, I wanted to say, you know, so so imagine yourself living with HIV. Let's compare it to say you were diagnosed with diabetes or breast cancer. You would go home and you'd tell, oh, I've been diagnosed with breast cancer or diabetes. And people would go, that's awful, and give you a cuddle. If you get diagnosed with HIV, one, people either don't disclose and they don't tell people, or they go home and the first question is, well, how did you get that? And then, yeah. you know, they're tarred, they're muddied they're dirtied in some way and that's what I really wish we could erase Mm, I completely agree and I think you know as a therapist and a psychotherapist dealing with people's anxiety and stress and the impact on mental health that in the room is massive for people and you know being able to say to people you have options now you have treatment now you know, you being responsible for your health, you understanding your health, you being able to communicate that to a partner in a reassuring and mm. informed way are a huge, huge part of your toolkit for managing HIV yeah. and having, you know, a healthy, normal, inverted commas, my least favorite word, life. Because yeah. it is about us being in a place where we've moved from i suppose uninformed to informed and that that is a massive massive part of it for me but i think that in the therapy room and having worked in a kind of variety of settings for me this stuff comes up and it comes up at the start of people's sex lives because they are anxious about what you know picking up an sti or picking up hiv or how they have a sex life which means that they can protect themselves against that because they've had so much messaging or they've been given really kind of strong narratives about the kind of people again inverted commas um, i know it's a podcast <laughs> you can't see me doing that but um you know the kind of people that pick these things up or that it's yeah. dirty or a type of sex which means that you can get these things and as we know anyone can pick up an sti however many people they've slept with yeah. just by having sex and you can't tell by looking at someone what the status is fact so we there's kind of the anxieties about you know how do I protect myself at the start of my sex life if people have picked something up whether it's HIV or any kind of STI at some point during their sex lives what that means going forward for them and how that can impact their lives but also the stigma attached to or what it means about them as a person for having an infection or having um, a disease because I think that it's really important that we also think about how this impacts how people feel about themselves and how people think about themselves. And, you know, another thing that we know, you know, all of this talk, I suppose, about kind of managing these conditions, you know, and our health is that life life expectancy on all these medications is now 
normal completely different yeah yeah to well, what it was years yeah. ago yeah so life expectancy as long as you're diagnosed early and when I say early I'm talking about when your CD4 count hasn't been completely suppressed to sort of you know a very poor level you should expect a normal life expectancy which is actually better than diabetes and you know loads of other conditions mm. so um, and even if your CD4 count is very low it doesn't mean you're going to die it's just I don't think there's the evidence out there to show that you might live till your what's the life expectancy now 80 something or whatever but I mean who who wants to live till then anyway <laughs> I know I want to go a little bit earlier than that. Uh, well, um, and, I don't know. And when you say CD4 count, what exactly does that mean for the oh, less yeah. medically educated like myself? Yeah, so a CD4 count is how we measure people's immunity. It's one of the markers in the blood. It eats away at the CD4 count, so that drops. And as your CD4 count lowers, that's when you get these strange infections like PCP, carposarcomas, etc. But to start with, when your CD4 count does start going lower, it's it's minor things like um, slightly strange blood panels. If a GP is doing a blood picture, they get thrombocytopenia or um, raised proteins or they might have weight loss of unknown cause or persistent diarrhea or really bad skin problems, things like that. So they're very subtle changes um, before you get to the full-blown what we call opportunistic infections. So, but, you know, even at that point, I mean, I remember when I was a registrar, the first HIV patient I was involved with, um, he had appendicitis because of T, he had TB related appendicitis. It all ruptured in his tummy. He got sent to theatre. Um, he had about two CD4 cells. So normal is anything above 400. I was going to ask that. I was like, what's, what's normal, yeah. what's high, what's low? He had, he had two or something, two poor little CD4s running around. Well, that was two in our bottle. But, um, uh, and he died twice. He actually arrested twice. And I remember going in and he went down to about 46 kilograms. It was just awful. And I was this beautiful, lovely man. Anyway, and now he has had two children. He works as a, he's retrained as a nurse, works as a nurse, healthy as a fiddle, amazing man really positive so you know it's never too late and I will never forget him he was like you know when someone really inspires you and he mm. hung on to life and his girlfriend sat with him every single day she didn't desert him when they all found out etc she sat with him every day and I'm sure that was why he he got through it all so yeah and there's you know there'll be amazing stories like that throughout everywhere you know mm. so we can resurrect anyone from the dead, even literally. Yeah, God, um, that's made me um like put like goosebumps in my arm. That's yeah, it. yeah, um, and he went on to have kids and get married, and you know, just like wow. Those are the stories I wish we had more of. That people yeah. can kind of go from rock bottom and yeah. recover and have a normal life. And I think that you know the 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 kind of historical messaging and you know the reality of what HIV and then AIDS used to be was a death sentence. And I really think that, you know, telling people that there is a reality of you being able to completely turn your life around and mm. that the help is there, you know, that mm. the advice is there, that people want to help, you know, kind of medical practitioners like yourself and that the medication is there to support that, that there's a multidisciplinary approach yeah. Yeah. Um, that is really, really effective. And I think that when we're having these conversations, we're not just addressing them to 
people who are HIV positive, but also to people that are HIV negative. And oh. the, the biggest thing that we can do is filter all of these messages into the mainstream conversation, into the general conversation, into the media, into yeah. social media, into us as experts, kind of using our platforms to educate. Because it's this is this is a message for everyone. It's not just a message for people mm. that are struggling with HIV in their lives. And that's because it's something that can happen to anyone and you know you don't know that that person that you have a conversation with then goes and gets an HIV test and finds out that they're one of those 7,000 and that is one more person that we have reached and I think that how we are able to change that conversation for me is really really important you know almost kind of the that idea of like you know can't pass it on in terms of kind of taking your medication and the infection, the opposite is true of the conversation. It's like, pass it on, like, tell everyone, let's talk yes. about this a bit I more. like that, Kate. This should we'll be... Just, should be on the spot, don't worry about pass it. Pass it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I really yeah. want people to... Yeah. And I love, yeah. um, you know, all the posters that I've kind of seen. I keep taking photos of them, like at the bus stop, and it's like giving HIV the finger. And yeah. you know, we're seeing all these campaigns and we're seeing people being a part of them and I just think normalizing is such a big 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 part of my job in any aspect of sexual health and sexual wellness and I think it's just so important here I'd also I'd really like people to actually put themselves in that situation of having HIV and considering how tough that is socially for people to navigate relationships dating apps all the rest of it and think is that you know actually is there any basis for that to be so I mean I know you Kate you must talk about sexual difficult well I know you talk about sexual difficulties that's your job you know and sex is difficult full stop for everybody Mm. it's always going to be difficult because we're hung up on our bodies or our education or other cultural things add HIV into that mix and it makes it incredibly difficult and I think we've got to remember this is a sexually transmitted infection so you can't separate it from sex but I, I just want everyone to realise that people on medication are, uh, I guess, the safest people to have sex with, if that makes sense. I'm not putting that out as an advert to have sex with HIV positive. That sounds dreadful, doesn't it? But what I'm saying is, you know, f- f- just exclude that from even the, as an issue. Mm. It's not, transmission is not an issue. And it's just about awareness, got, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. So if we can just, you know, because then sex can get back to being just as excruciatingly difficult as everybody <laughs> as else. It is for the rest of us. As, as exactly, <laughs> for everyone else who doesn't have to live with HIV. So, you know, let's just try and get rid of that out of that equation and we can just go back to being, you know, normal, hung up British people who can't talk about sex. Uh, uh, uh. You know. <laughs> I know. Uh, and then you get people like us that just want to shut up about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think that... You know, for me, I guess it feels like we were like covered so much in this conversation, but it is about understanding also that although this is an infection, that everything to do with sex is a kind of about the why of sex as much as the what. It's about yeah. our mental health, how we think about ourselves, how we feel about yeah. ourselves. And for someone who has HIV to be putting themselves in a sexual situation or to be dating or to be with a new partner... You know, if they're being responsible for their sexual health and they shouldn't feel shame, they shouldn't feel embarrassment, they shouldn't feel that they aren't good enough to mm. date, to meet mm. partners. And I think that so much of it is in 
feeling educated and sure of what you're talking about and sure of your medication and informed yeah. and in a I suppose a confident place to know your status because so much of the uncertainty for me is where lots of anxiety can get kind of is a breeding ground for anxiety really yeah. so they're kind of like oh I'm not sure well what about this oh I don't know about that but where whereas we are saying we have evidence here for things being different and I think that everything to do you know everything to do with that is important because it affects how people feel about themselves about feeling you know secure in themselves like self-esteem mental health feeling good enough and we just know that this is an infection that can be managed effectively and yeah. that's such a big part of it for me yeah and basically we we might all just need a bit of therapy <laughs> <laughs> i think everyone could do with therapy full stop for everything well, yeah but i think you know that bit is just for me anyway therapy is about feeling heard feeling listened yeah. to and yeah. you know i would like the hiv community to feel listened to yeah. because you know everyone's doing everything right in lots of ways you know taking the medication looking after their health getting regularly checked going to appointments so then they shouldn't be penalized for that you know in a, in a way lots of people are looking after their health as effectively as possible and why is that not the message that we're putting out there i love that fab well i reckon we have covered pretty much <laughs> Well, everything. Uh, this is, if we carry on, it'll be lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much, Kate, for chatting with me. Um, thank you. Hopefully it's been useful for anyone if anyone's taken the time to get this far through the podcast. <laughs> thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you, Naomi. You know, I always learn a lot from you and I'm very oh. impressed by your big fancy medical words. Um, but yeah, for me, I think we're all on the stigma smashing mission, aren't we? We, we try yeah. our best. Definitely. So there you have it. Let's smash stigma by having more open conversations. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review and subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the topics that Naomi and Kate discuss, email info at nam.org.uk or follow us on Twitter at AIDSMAP.